Welcome to The Theater Project. Today, The Theater Project is thinking about starting your own YouTube channel. I am your host, Mary Ionelli, and I sit down with one of our TPJ alumni, Dylan Randazzo, to see how he came about starting his own YouTube channel, what it took, what pitfalls to watch out for, what equipment you need, and everything in between. We hope you enjoy. Dylan, thank you for joining us. Of course. I haven't talked to you in a while. I know. I know that we're here to talk mainly about the YouTube channel, how you got it started, and what's happening with that. But what I'd like to do is if you could just give me a little bit of background on how you got here. Yeah, of course. So I've just been doing theater since I was young, just a lover of film, TV, theater, all types of media. So that's like my first passion is in performance and actually doing the art and making the art. But I've also always had that passion for enjoying it as a consumer and studying the art. And I find it just as interesting being part of it as I do observing it. So I've kind of had like this love of both being part of it and outside of it, which has made for a really fun, you know, past few years getting to explore both the creative side of myself as a performer and then also, as you said, starting this YouTube channel and just being able to talk about both as someone who has seen both sides, as someone who critiques art and makes it as well. Why YouTube rather than like a podcast or some other medium? Are there any other mediums that I'm not aware of yet? YouTube's the big one. Also, TikTok's been taken off and just Instagram in general. There's a lot of different places now where I feel like people can post their art and publicize their art, which is cool. It's great to see. You don't just have to go out to an actual theater to see art or music or listen to a CD or something. It's available everywhere. Every app you open on your phone. And YouTube has always been kind of where I found my media best. I've always been a very audio and visual learner, less than reading. I love to read. I love reading reviews. I've always loved reading written reviews, but for me, I always loved seeing people talk about the art they like and talk about the movies they like and hearing it aloud and seeing it aloud. So that's always where I was interested as a consumer, watching reviews and different critics. I didn't grow up with Siskel and Ebert, but I watched a lot of reruns of it when I was younger and just seeing now that YouTube is a place where people can share their thoughts about films and TV and theater. It's so exciting because it opens up so many avenues for people to get creative and get started without needing funding by a studio or to be an actual news reporter or actually have a degree in it to actually do it, which is very exciting. So I always found that exciting to know that I could pursue theater, but also still be able to do this without a degree, without needing the certification to do it and just being able to do it almost as a hobby just kind of publicized for other people to see. What was your end goal when you started this channel and what's it called? What's it about? It's called the Dill Pickle Movie Network, just because my name is Dylan, the play on words, <laughs> Dill Pickles from the Rugrats. So it's always been a nickname. I didn't want to make it Dylan Randazzo because that's my performance professional name. I wanted to make it something else, but I also didn't want to make it about me because I think part of YouTube that is so great is you're sharing it with so many people. It's not exclusive. And that's why I call it the Dill Pickle Movie Network, because I want to make it about getting people interested in listening to what I have to say, but also chiming in in the comments section and bringing people on the channel to talk about movies with me. I really want it to be a community event, not just me talking about things I like, but me talking about things I like with other people and hearing their perspectives on things. It was actually a pandemic project. I was actually kind of bored. So I was like, I'm just going to post some reviews online and see if it sticks. And it did. It didn't take off right away, obviously, as, as nothing really does, but it was nice to just see people responding to it, people I knew closely, and then as 
you post more, it snowballs into more people looking and more people listening, and then you have more time to actually put more care into it and expand it. It was just kind of this small little thing I did just to express what I was doing in the pandemic, which was watching a lot of movies, talking about movies. And because ever since I've been young, people have always conned me to ask, what did you think of this? It was a great way to just kind of have that outlet to be like, here's what I thought. And just being a performer as well, I had the confidence already to be on camera, which helped. Because I think another thing you have to have when you're starting anything is you have to decide for yourself if you're comfortable wanting to actually show yourself and talk and have your voice actually said aloud unedited, unscripted, or if you want to have it more scripted or even written, because there are so many critics who write so well, but then you put them on camera and they don't know how to talk about their what they like and vice versa. There are people who can talk about it well, but don't really know how to formulate it into words. So I was always more into the actual video on air, just talking my thoughts out loud, which was kind of the angle I wanted to go in. I never expected to actually be with it after the pandemic. I thought it would just be like this hobby side thing that I was interested in doing, but it became a real passion of mine that I actually genuinely liked pursuing and eventually, hopefully, being able to make a career out of that as well. Well, that'd be awesome. From the time you thought about the concept, did you run through a couple of things before you settled on that one? Did you always know that was it? And how long did it take from concept to actualization? I always knew I wanted to do movie reviews. I knew I wanted to talk about movies I liked, but I didn't know exactly which movies I'd be covering, if they were new movies or old movies, classics or TV. And that kind of came with time and just seeing what was available in the pandemic. It was more TV than film in terms of new stuff. And it was just the people I wanted to talk to about it. Like I have great friends that have different interests. I had a friend who really likes Marvel. So we have our own little Marvel show. And then a friend who likes really bad movies. So we have this show called Framework where we talk about so bad they're good movies. So it's like finding things that other people are passionate about gave me an idea of where to gear the channel toward. I didn't really toy around many ideas in terms of what it would be. I just knew movie reviews was the basis of it and everything else kind of came later. And about how long would you say that took from the time you said, okay, I want to do movie reviews till you recorded your first episode? I think I'd always been thinking about a more public outlet of posting reviews before for a while now, like for years, ever since I started on Facebook or Twitter, just posting reactions from text, people have always been like, you should post reviews more often. So I got a letterboxd account where I could post like longer written reviews, but the video reviews, I think once I had the idea, it took maybe like a week or two because I needed to, you know, obviously get all the equipment and just figure that out. I also needed to figure out what I wanted to talk about first and what was available. So I would say it was quick, though, because, again, it can be done anywhere. It can be done at your home. It can be done literally wherever you are. And I think that was what was so special. I didn't have to wait for approval. I didn't have to rehearse, really. It just was put on the camera and see how it goes. And I think it helps, too. You knew what your passion was inertly. Right. And so it wasn't like you were saying, oh, I want to start a YouTube channel. What can I do with it? You knew what you wanted to do, it was a question of how you were going to go about doing it. Right. Yeah, I think the how is definitely the trickier part. The general idea is you always should start from a place of passion, not a place of, I want to make this a career. Because if you do want to make it a career, you're never going to strike gold at first. I'm still not monetized. I'm still not at that point yet, but that's okay because I like doing it. Whereas I think if people are just trying to get into it because they're like, oh, I can make some money on the side reviewing movies. You know, that YouTube is not outlet for that. But it was never about that for me. It was never about, oh, I need to make money in the pandemic. Let me make movie reviews. It was never that. It was more of, oh, I want to just 
talk about them and, and keep myself busy almost like give myself something to do uh, hobby wise that wasn't work that felt more fun like the whole do what you love thing and you'll never have to work a day in your life exactly and how do you plan for each podcast Every Monday, I post Marvelous Movie Mondays, which is the Marvel podcast. That's a video and audio podcast. So that's our only actual podcast. That's the only thing that's available on audio form. Oh, I keep saying podcast, but I mean the YouTube. Yeah, the channel. I know what you mean, but the Monday show is available in podcast form because it is weekly. So we kind of have that strict schedule of every weekend we record and every Monday we put it out. And then the other shows I do are monthly. So we have, as I said, the so Bad They're Good show called Framewreck. And then we have one called Picture This, where we go through every Best Picture nominee for every year. Each month we pick a different year. And then everything else is just kind of as I see a movie and I want to talk about it, I will. I don't plan ahead what movies I'm going to review because I could always see a movie and then be like, I don't really have anything else to add that other people haven't. Or I don't have any strong opinions either way. And typically, just because of the way the internet is, I typically like to talk more about movies I like than movies I don't, which is another thing. Like, if I see a movie I really hate, if I can find almost like a funny, lighthearted way to deliver that opinion, I will make a review for it. But I only really put my attention toward reviewing movies that I actually care about talking about. And I think that's important. It comes back to the whole passion thing. I like talking about what I want to talk about, what I enjoy, what I want to recommend to people. But as for the other shows, yeah, Mondays, every week we have the Marvel show, the Marvel podcast, and then all the other shows happen once a month, and then all the reviews are just kind of instantaneous whenever I see a movie and want to review it. So there's no really strict schedule, and that's what I kind of like also about YouTube is that it's my own schedule. I'm not working for anyone else. I'm not under someone else's demand. I set that goal for myself so I can still attain it. The weekly show keeps me always active, always thinking of something. And in terms of prepping each show individually, each show has its own different workloads. So like Marvel, usually we're reviewing like an episode of a TV show every week. So it's minimal demand. You watch an episode maybe once, maybe twice and take notes. And the movies themselves, like I don't take notes in the movie theater, but you know, right afterwards, I'll jot down some things. Those reviews don't take too long to write or to formulate. The other shows take a little bit longer because like the best picture one, I'm watching five to 10 movies a month, but it's as much work as I want to take on, which is, I think the beauty of YouTube and that you can kind of set your own schedule, set your own boundaries. And if it's overwhelming, you either take a week off or you cancel a show or you push it to the next week. It's very flexible, which is nice, which I've always appreciated, especially now that theaters are opening up and I'm starting to go back into that realm and performing and being busy that way. And I'm also working at a restaurant. So it's just a lot of things I'm juggling. And that's what's nice. I can be on my own schedule. And when you release a new episode, do you have a mailing list that people get notified or do they just have to look every now and then and see what's what? You can subscribe and then it'll just show up on your subscriptions fee. I don't have a mailing list, but probably something to look into. I don't know if YouTube does a mailing list, but I do think if you're subscribed, you can turn on a notification bell and it'll notify you if you're interested in notifications. Otherwise, people just usually see it scrolling about. I go out of my way to make sure to post on like Twitter because that's where a lot of like the film nerds are <laughs> posting there to see, be like, yo, check this review out or check this video out. And then I'll hashtag something so other people can find it elsewhere. You know, I started to do it more with Facebook too, but that's more of just my personal friends and family. Whereas Twitter, I feel I can at least reach out to people I don't know that way. But I think a lot of the marketing with YouTube is 
if you have a loyal subscriber base that's happy with the product, they kind of market it for you because they're sharing it with their friends. They're posting it themselves. They're saying, hey, check out this review. And, and that's my favorite type of marketing is the one where it's not like I'm forcing myself on anyone else to where other people are overwhelmed and like, oh, this guy's just doing this for clout. But because other people are sharing it, other people are telling their friends, you should check this guy's channel out. He, he has some good ideas or uh, he doesn't have good ideas. And that's fine too. Some people disagree, but hey, it gets the views. So uh, I welcome it all as long as they're respectful in the comments. But I think the best marketing for me has always been other people liking it and sharing it with other people has been the best way of getting outreach. Do you find that most of your viewers are repeat or is it something where one of the things you tweet actually gets different people to come in and listen? It's interesting because I don't get the exact analytics of who is watching every video, but I do tend to notice that the stuff that is hot and current and of the now, a lot of people are more interested in that stuff, obviously. But I think you need the more mainstream videos talking about the newest, hottest TV shows and movies to get the views. And then the other smaller videos, the more niche topics, the subscribers carry that out. So I've gotten a lot more views and watches and likes and stuff for the more popular mainstream stuff. Like I've just been going through ranking all the Disney animated movies and that's such a big fan base. I mean, that's a hundred years worth of fans. So like right. I've been getting a lot of views there. Whereas if I review this small little indie film, I might not get as many views but it's never really been about that for me at least not right now later down the line if i want to make this more of a substantial career choice like that would be something i'd look at but right now i'm just having fun doing it and if the views come they do if they don't they don't but yeah in terms of outreach i do think you can kind of see the youtube analytics they give you an idea of like where everyone's finding it and i actually find that a lot of people are seeing it on youtube if they're just scrolling through their homepage, because the more you post and the more views you get, the more YouTube puts it out into the algorithm. I don't understand how the YouTube algorithm works. No one really does. It just kind of does its own thing. But I've noticed that people are finding it more on their own than I am putting it out there, which is always a good sign. It's always nice to see that people are stumbling upon it on their own right. rather than me having to throw it out there and hope people grab at the bait. And I would think that when you do something that's more current, there are more people looking for the new Marvel movie right now than there are looking for Jungle Cruise or anything. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think a good thumbnail always helps too. Just having something that's eye-catching to grab people in, even if it's a podcast, having a good tagline, a good topic. Like you can't just say this movie review. You also got to have a good picture. And I always try to, if I have a review, put my picture in the thumbnail too, because I want people to see, oh, it's this guy talking about it. It's not just a video essay, which some people have video essays and they're really great. Those are more like scripted, long form essays that are just put to camera, but mine are just more conversational. It's either me talking to the camera or it's me talking to another person, but it's, it's always conversational. And I think that's also something nice. You got to kind of find your niche that makes you a little different, I think as well. And I think mine is that it is just more conversational. It's a little bit more laid back, but it's always like talking to a friend and having a friend give a recommendation rather than, oh, this guy's just going to read this formal written up thing he has to say about this movie, you know, because there are so many outlets, so many newspapers that can do that. Do you run into any copyright or royalty issues if you use clips or anything like that that you need to be aware of? Yeah, YouTube is very strict with that. I've learned that anything more than eight seconds, if it's like a song or a clip, like a really nice like HD clip, they'll snag it right away. And normally that doesn't affect an early YouTuber. Like that doesn't affect someone just starting out because you're not really monetized right away. That really only docks monetization. They'll say you cannot make money on this. It instead has to go to that company. I don't understand all the ins and outs of the monetization in terms of ads and copyrights and all that, but 
I try my best to steer clear of it because if my channel ever does become monetized, I want to be able to have those videos I've built the channel on be able to bring in money as well. So I try my best and YouTube will let you know before you post, they do like a copyright check. So it's nice. They tell you this clip is too long or this clip is a copyright. You can't use it. Sometimes they'll forgive it. Sometimes they'll say this is a copyright claim, but it doesn't affect anything. It just, we're going to add ads to your videos and that's fine. Sometimes they'll say you won't be able to have sound in this section of your oh. video or this whole section of the video will be completely dark. So they'll always let you know in the copyright check area, but I haven't run into any huge issues because like one of my first videos, I put a little bit of a clip of something and it went nine seconds and it got the video struck. So I was like, okay, now I know it's a lot of trial and error too. Just kind of figuring out, oh, okay. If I go longer than eight seconds, eight seconds is always my bar though. It's always, if it's less than eight seconds, it's usually okay to use. And some creators get a little creative with it. They'll either speed up the clip 1.5 speed. So it's a little quicker. So it doesn't get that strike or they'll reverse the frame. So it's opposite. They do a lot of different tricks to get past the copyright, but copyright has been a big thing that a lot of people have gotten, not in trouble for, but it's really held them back, especially in the editing process. If you have a really long video and you're trying to upload it and it takes two hours to upload and then you get a copyright strike and you have to re-edit and re-upload, like it, it's very time consuming. So I wish they'd be a little less strict about their copyright because we are sharing art because we love it and we want to talk about it. So it sucks that sometimes we, we can't do that. We can't show the art. We have to just talk about it, but it becomes an issue sometimes. And I think some people may think that all I have to do is sit in front of my screen or on my phone and talk into it, and then I can throw it up on YouTube. How much time, let's say for like a 30-minute conversation, you've done a 30-minute interview or, or talk, that's the recording. Now there's the editing and then the marketing. So how long does it take for you to edit that? And then how much time do you spend marketing it either on Facebook or Twitter or any of those other outlets. The editing definitely takes longer than the marketing because like I said, the marketing I'm not always putting as a priority only because I know the people who are loyal to watching everything I do will share it, will talk about it, will post it for me, will watch it. And I already have a good subscriber base to do that. But in terms of the editing, it does take a while because I'm also a perfectionist. It might take longer than others, but I do think it just depends on what exactly you want to put out there. If you want to put out this really polished, really professional video, then yeah, it's going to take time, especially to download the file and then edit it up and then upload it. It takes time. And I use iMovie, you know, I don't use anything super fancy. I use what my computer comes with, but I think it also takes time to familiarize yourself with the program that you're using as well and see, oh, how do I exactly do this? I'm still finding tricks and tips on how to make my videos better. And then deciding if you do have a bunch of different content for me, like I have a bunch of different shows. Some of them I let just be long form conversations. Some of them I leave unedited because that's kind of what I want to go for. Some of them I like to be crisp and polished and edited. So I think it's also a matter of what media you're doing and what art you're putting out there, what reviews you're putting out there, what projects you're putting out there and what that entails. But yeah, for like a 30 minute conversation, if there are parts of the conversation where your guest is either can't think of the right words and there's dead air time. We call that dead air, obviously. And, and you don't love that, especially for podcasts, because when you're listening and you hear nothing, it's not like you have that visual aid and that can be detrimental. Some people could turn it off. You don't want that to happen. So sometimes you have to go through the conversation and see those little moments and tighten them up. And, and that can be tedious. That can be time consuming. Or you commit to letting it be long form and, and having all the flaws in there, but then risking the potential of people not taking it as seriously. So I think it's kind of a balancing act. You have to prioritize 
Do you want to make it more time efficient? Do you want to make it more professional? And a lot of the times it works out where you don't have to edit much because your guest is great and they keep up the conversation or you just get everything you need to say said and you don't have many stumbles. When I'm on my own, I find that to be the time I have the most edits because I don't have that person to bounce off of. So whenever I'm reviewing something on my own and doing that review and editing that review on iMovie, it takes me a much longer time because I'm going through and I'm like, oh, I, I said um there too many times or I took a breath or I tripped over a word. So it's a lot of going back and fine tuning myself. Like I said, I am a perfectionist, but in the conversational stuff, it really just depends on also if the guest is comfortable. If they say something they're like, ah, I don't want that to be aired, especially now the, the climate of just how people say things online and you have to be careful sometimes of what you're saying and right. uh, who you're addressing and the things you're talking about. So that's also important. Sometimes a guest will say something that they make sense when you know them, but doesn't really cater itself to be put online for hundreds of people or thousands of people to hear. So that's also important too, is to keep in mind who the guest is and if they have anything that they would not like to be shown or they want to re-edit or retake or anything like that. So it varies by project, but it does take time. And I think that's important. If you want to actually be serious about this and want to make this not necessarily a career, but like a full-time hobby and actually want to get traction, having a nice looking final project and final product is important. Yeah. And how produced do you get as far as makeup, costumes? Do you go through any of that for certain ones or is it pretty much just natural? No, I mean, I mean, like right now, I don't have makeup on it, but I took a shower. I, my hair is nice. I'm wearing a nicer shirt. And I think also your equipment has a lot to do with it. The lighting and just the equipment of the mic and how everything sounds, that also adds to it. it just adds a professional nature to it because I always want to make sure I'm still myself. I'm still staying true to who I am sure. and not trying too hard to put on a different persona. And I am more laid back. I'm more just kind of casual. I like just kind of talking and shooting it around with someone. So I'm not always going to be in a suit and kind of like I'm on air on a news channel. That's a different vibe. But some people, that is what they're going for. They want to be more professional. They'll have like a green screen and they'll have a background and that's fine. And I think it just varies by person. It's whatever you want to do to showcase your best self, whether that is getting in full makeup and having multiple lights and having even two or three mics, which I think is a little excessive. But again, if that's how you feel most comfortable, if you think that's going to work and benefit you best, then that should be what you do. But I haven't needed to really put too much attention into like that kind of stuff in wardrobe and hair and all that. Just as long as I am presentable. And even then during the pandemic, it was a little more forgiving because it was like everyone was just at home in their pajamas. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think it also might depend on the type of show you're doing. Right. If you're doing something where you're making a movie mm -hmm. or some kind of serial thing, other than interview style or discussion mm -hmm. you can be in normal clothes and yeah so people should kind of pay attention to that as well right yeah of course getting into the equipment mm -hmm. i'm going to ask you two questions for this one what is the bare bones that somebody starting out would need and then what would your ideal be that once you're more established or you want to do a more polished product or something like that, that they would go to. So let's start with the bare bones. Obviously you need a camera and a microphone and microphone doesn't even necessarily need to be an actual microphone you buy. All you need is a laptop or even your phone. 
but I did want to at least go the extra step of let me get a nice light and let me get a nice microphone. And I obviously, like I said, I'm from a performing background, so I had the luxury of already having a ring light because that's where I film a lot of auditions. And I got a microphone. And I think the nice thing nowadays is because this is becoming more of a mainstay of people creating their own content and stuff like that, even for like TikToks and stuff, people have much cheaper equipment than you could have found a while ago. A few years ago, it might have had to have been the state of the art, but now I feel like so many people are jumping into content creation that there are affordable options, which I think some people don't necessarily know about. I think as you grow, as you have the means, as you have more passions, you can kind of invest in some more expensive equipment. But I think as long as you have a light that can illuminate yourself, and even if it's just sunlight, even if you have a really well-lit room, like that can be enough. As long as there's front lighting, side lighting, you can sometimes get a little bit of a shadow, but I like having front lighting. The microphone doesn't have to be necessarily fancy, but as long as they can hear you well, because I think that's important. They hear you well, they see you well, is the main focus. And obviously having something to edit on helps as well. Right. It's important to have good equipment, but I, I don't think you need the best equipment. You don't need a whole TV set's worth of equipment to produce what you want to produce if you are doing something at home, because there's kind of a novelty to the kind of homemade feel, I think, at times. And that's what I've found is that I've gotten a long way just on this simple, I have a Blue Yeti microphone and then this ring light, which didn't cost me much on Amazon. It was nice. It showed up on my doorstep and I could just start creating. And then just finding a space, like I did get a desk and I have this chair here just because it's more comfortable. I think being comfortable in your space is also important. As long as you have a place you're comfortable and then at least a way to light you, even if that's a light, if that's sunlight. I don't always recommend the overheads just because sometimes it can cast a shadow on your face unless you have other light illuminating as well. And then a microphone or something to capture sound that isn't grainy or doesn't sound bad as long as it sounds good right and you said you have a yeti blue a blue yeti nano it's probably like a hundred dollars to get a decent mic and the ring light how big is your ring light is it like 10 inch 16 um, i would say maybe about 16 yeah it's it's not huge like i said i use it for acting stuff too so i want to make sure it can be as tall as me when i'm standing up but I also want to make sure it can like fit nicely here on the desk and make sure it illuminates nicely. And I even have these LEDs I bought for when I do some videos where I'm facing the other way, not doing like a Zoom call or anything like that. I have these LEDs also to add a little color, add a little pop, which I didn't start using till recently. So even then I'm heading into the second year of the channel and I'm just starting to now add a little bit more color. And I think also if you're into movies, having movie posters is cool or having these little pop figures. Like I have a little genie from Aladdin here and, you know, just like little things to kind of decorate and give a little flair, give a little uh, sense of personality. So when people watch, when they turn you on, they can be like, oh, he's into that or he's into that or, or even using stuff that's pertaining to your videos. Like I said, I've been doing some Disney videos. So I have these Disney action figures here. When people turn on, they know, oh, he's talking about Disney. Just little things like that, just to add personality and it always comes back to showcasing yourself and what you do. Right. That's the most important. Yeah. As long as it reflects who you are as an artist and what you want to talk about and what you're interested in. But yeah, I think equipment goes a long way, but it is not the end all be all. Like I think you can go a long way with a little, which I think is important to know too. You don't necessarily need to go for the most expensive product. It's not super cheap, but it's going to last you a while and it's going to give you a nicer product. And you said you use iMovie. Yep, I use iMovie, yeah, which is an Apple editing tool. There are a lot of programs. Usually there's at least one program that comes with every like maker of 
computer, but there's other products you can invest in. And, and some people like that because some of them are a little bit more user friendly. Some of them are a little more time friendly and it saves you a lot of time. And then some people like to be risky and do live streams, which is also cool. That's another cool thing that YouTube does now is you can live stream and have people commenting along as you talk about things. And I don't trust myself enough to do that all the time, but I may someday try that and see what it's like to actually interact live on air with people who are chiming in on the comment section. So there's a lot of different expansions that YouTube is doing, and I hope technology supports that as well. But I think the moral is you don't have to go to the lengths of like a TV studio equipment to get the product you want, especially if you're doing it as a passion, as a hobby. If you're building a career on it, if you get monetized, then like, sure, go all out. You have the money to do it. It's your career now. Just like an actor or singer has an acting coach or a voice coach. Like it's the same thing. You kind of invest in what you think is most beneficial for you in growing your product if that's what you want to go for. If it's just a hobby and you're fine staying as is and you don't want to grow, that's fine too. At first, that's what I wanted for the pandemic, but then afterwards I realized I really did like it and I wanted to grow it more. I wanted to expand it and keep it going and make it more than just a hobby. And because the nature of your channel is discussion, if somebody were doing something where they were writing their own series or making their own movie or doing that, I think they would need to get into some of the other equipment like overhead mics and tripods and funky stuff like that. But even then too, it's nice to see even with technology now that you can even make movies on your iPhones. Yes. There's this filmmaker, Sean Baker, who made this movie called Tangerine solely on his iPhone. It was released in theaters on Netflix. Oh, wow. He obviously had good sound equipment and added on and post-production and all that, but it was filmed on an iPhone. So even then, I think technology is really keeping up, which is nice. It allows people to be able to create without having to go to the depths of their wallets to make it happen, which is nice. Yeah. When I was doing the research on this, I came across something called optimizing the channel. Hmm, okay. Do you have any idea what that means? I looked into it a little bit too. I think it's just making products that people will see. It kind of goes hand in hand with marketing, setting yourself up for success the best way you can in terms of finding equipment that suits you well and finding a nice thumbnail or a nice title, just something to reel people in a nice hook. And I think optimizing also plays into yourself, like optimizing your schedule and your health and your work process, I think is important too. And just making priorities in general and figuring out your best process and how you work is important as well. Because with movies, it's interesting because you have a little bit of a window with popular stuff because after a week, everyone's talked about it. You're not going to get all the views. If you're one of the first a hundred people to post a review, good thing. But a week later, there may be a thousand reviews and then no one looks at yours. So it's also opt optimizing and prioritizing what to talk about. If you're going for solely for views and likes and growing in that sense, maybe getting the three o'clock Friday show is better than going with your friends on Friday night because you'll be able to post your review by Saturday morning. Sometimes that's also what you talk about when you think about when you're making specifically film criticism, but any channel, finding out your best schedule to produce art that you're going to get a nice traction with for other people. Are there any scams out there? I know sometimes for modeling, like these people who want to take all your money and they say they're going to give you headshots and you know, all this modeling and stuff for your portfolio. Are there the same types of things that you need to be aware of because you don't need them? 
Yeah, I think there are a lot of people that sometimes say, sign up with our thing and we'll help distribute your YouTube channel and show it to more people. And some of those are legit, but I think the ones that are legit will maybe go about in better means, like contacting you more personally, where if you get a comment on something that says, message us and we'll help you grow, we'll help you expand your company. Some of those can be scams and they think it's just talking to other people who have been in the game longer can help identify that. Because I myself, I'm still trying to figure out and decipher what's different. My sister has been getting more into the Instagram influencer culture, and even she has to kind of look at that and see, are these brands legit? Am I actually going to be sponsoring this brand, or is this a scam? Scamming is all over there, and I think that's the detriment to it being so widely available is you can have anyone comment on it, and it can lead you astray. But like I said, marketing is not my number one focus, which is why I don't fall for the bait as much. But again, if someone is doing it for the sole purpose of monetization, which I never think making a piece of art should be, it shouldn't be about the money. But if that is the goal, you got to watch out for that stuff because people are going to make it sound really easy, but then you get into it and you're like, oh, that's a scam. That's not legit. I did a podcast recently about voiceovers and I found a voiceover community on Facebook a lot of people talking about it and things like that. Are there any groups like that for YouTube you've heard of that you would recommend? I think social network and social media in general, just being on Twitter, I'm interacting with a few other creators just from seeing what other people are posting. But I've actually met a lot of the people that I collaborate with through other critics. I watch this critic, Dan Merle, who's a movie critic. I watched him and I subscribed to his Patreon, which is basically a subscriber thing where you pay a certain amount of money a month and you get exclusive videos and you become part of this community. And he had this chat room for all his patrons. And I met a bunch of other film fans through there. And through that, I was able to network and meet some who I consider some of my greatest friends who are also people I talk to in my videos and people I co-host different shows with through watching another critic. So because we all loved Dan's art, because he was a well-established critic, he worked for Screen Junkies, he's Rotten Tomatoes certified, he's legit. But for watching him and being part of his group, we kind of made our own little community and helped kickstart my channel to where now if this does take off 10 years from now and this is a monetized channel and I have a Patreon and I have people coming to me, hopefully they're inspired to start their own thing. So I think a lot of it also has to do with inspirations of people who came before. So like Dan Merle was a big inspiration for me as a critic. And then I know Siskel and Ebert and Leonard Malton were critics that influenced him and he got into it that way. So I think Another thing is also reaching out to the people that inspire you. Even if they're the most famous people, sometimes and more often than that, they won't respond, but they are people who love what they do and you show your appreciation in a way that's not stalkerish or crazy or lunatic. <laughs> but if you say, you know, hey, I'm working on this channel, sometimes they will help you out and say, oh yeah, let me share this to my friends. So I think another thing is to look at the other people who are doing what you love and reach out to them and really create that network. And that's why I call it the Dill Pickle Movie Network, because I want to be able to create those relationships and really have people come to me to share their opinions as well as be offering mine to them and, and vice versa. So I think a big part of it is reaching out personally and trying to start those conversations, because the worst that can happen is they don't respond. Exactly. And then you're no worse off than you were before. And that's the same with every profession too, even with theater. Reaching out to the casting agents and talent managers and other actors. Networking is everything. And I think that's important. Now we mentioned YouTube analytics. What types of analytics do they provide and do you use them and how? 
Yeah, so they obviously show you how many people are watching each video, how many people are liking each video, disliking each video, and they've actually been good. They don't show dislikes anymore on YouTube. They only show it to you personally, which is nice. They show subscriber count. But then what's also nice is they can show you exactly what parts of your videos are the more peak parts. If you have a two-hour conversation, like in my Marvel podcast, if we're talking about this really big topic and it's an hour long, some people may only watch the first 20 minutes and then trail out. And that gives you an idea of maybe they're not into the more long form shows. Or sometimes you'll see that they are watching the whole hour for some things. And, and that's good to see. Okay. And then for reviews, you can kind of see where they tune in and tune out and what grasps them and the average watch time for each video or the average viewers for each video. And you also get to see your last 30 days performance because that's also important to show are people still interested now? Are all these numbers coming from a year ago? Because some people, they go into hiatuses or hibernation, they take a break or something. So it's nice to see the 30 day window to see if that's any different than the overall window to see if you're still maintaining that goal and still achieving that goal. So I do look at analytics a lot. I don't really read into comments in terms of criticisms about my work and what I'm doing. I don't take those necessarily to heart unless it's actual valuable information. Sometimes they're just haters on the internet that you don't like to listen to, but actual analytics, I really like to listen to, to know exactly what people are interested in, if they're interested in certain things or not interested in certain things. Cause I think eventually, like I said, I do want to eventually monetize this and have this be a full-time thing right now. That's not the sole purpose, but it's important to look at because I think it also helps you as an artist. It's the same as in theater, the director giving notes. You're not going to just sure. have one rehearsal and then put on a show. You need to actually go through a process and see what works and what doesn't and try different stuff out. And sometimes you need those director notes and sometimes you need the advice. And the analytics is basically telling you that it's saying, Hey, this is what you're doing. Well, this is what you're not doing. Well, this is where they're finding you. They'll tell you, did they find you from Twitter? Did they find you from Facebook? Did they find you from their search bar? Did they just search a movie and you were one of the top results? They'll tell you all that, which is nice to see as well. Yeah, that would be helpful. I can imagine. The negative comments, you said you do see them. How do you not take them to heart? Because I know that you're always going to have people who are just negative for the sake of being negative and right. you kind of need a thick skin. I think that's another thing too, is having a thick skin. And I think that comes down to deciding to publish on YouTube in the first place. Cause YouTube and Twitter, anyone can go on there. Anyone could comment. And that's the danger. Whereas you have people who write for newspapers it's published and it's sent out there. They're not really getting much response back. They don't have to open the envelopes of hate mail, but I think having a thick skin is important. But even if you don't have a thick skin, a lot of people suffer from anxiety and worrying about people judging them. I do too. And I think it's just having to decide for yourself, what criticisms am I actually going to take to heart? And what are the critics that are being there just for the sake of hating on stuff? Like, cause you'll have people that haven't even seen a movie right. and then they'll leave a comment on your review. How could you like this movie? And it's, well, listen to the review and you'll find out why I like this movie. And maybe then you'll be, oh, okay, that makes sense. Because I try not to hate on a movie. I try to at least give some positives if I'm reviewing something because I do think it's people's art. You still want to be respectful of it. But at the same time, you want to be entertaining as a reviewer, as someone putting out a YouTube video, you want to still entertain. So sometimes you're going to have to dunk on a film sometimes a little bit, but some people don't respond to that well. And the people who are respectful in their comments, I will listen to and I'll actually take to heart. But the more experience you have, the more you're able to see who the real haters are and the internet trolls, we call them. Right. And who to ignore. Right. Exactly. You're going to have critics everywhere.
I am basing this YouTube channel on criticizing other people's art. And I know there are people who are gonna watch my videos and be like, wow, they hated my movie. That guy stinks. And, and that's fair. I mean, if you're upset that I said something negative, I think that's what you gotta accept. And just being able to phase it out when you want to, I think is important too. Sometimes it helps to turn the comments off. I don't think you can monetize if you turn the comments off, but again, people who are just doing it for a hobby and passion, they don't necessarily need to monetize. They don't necessarily need to turn the comments on. So you can do it that way too. Right. And what do you have to get to? Do you have to get to so many views or so many yeah. subscribers before you start monetizing? I think it's 4,000 hours watched is the watch minimum. And then I think you need 1,000 subscribers or 2,000 subscribers, something like that. My numbers might be a little off, but yeah, you need a substantial base. And I don't quite have that yet, obviously, but... I think I'd much rather have a loyal base of people. I'd rather have 200 people that listen to every review and like every review and actually engage in what I'm saying rather than having 4,000 people that never watched anything because what's the point of getting all the subscribers if you're not going to really have anything to share to them? Right. Yeah, the process, it's like a couple thousand subscribers, a bunch of watch time, which having longer conversational pieces helps fill out that watch time because if you have... 200 people watching an hour long video, like that's a good amount of time. So watching hours, I'm close to hitting that mark. It's more of the subscribers that I need to work on and grow, but that'll come with time. And that's kind of what everyone accepts when they're getting into this. If they want to make it a full-time career, you have to start low. Rarely can you monetize something off the bat. In order to do that, you would need to come from another outlet. Like maybe if you're on TV, have a famous show, or you are a celebrity and then you start a YouTube channel, yeah, you're going to get monetized right away. But if you're starting at square one here without any sort of notoriety or celebrity factor. It can take a while, but I think that's also up to the creator. Do they have the patience to stick it out or are they just doing it for a hobby and they'll end it someday and that'll be it? But then once you do monetize, it then becomes a full-time job and you actually have to keep up with it because then you have a group of people who are relying on you to provide them entertainment. It's like a TV show. If it gets canceled, you have all these people upset. You got to keep people engaged. And I think too, that's another area where Anybody who's starting out needs to be careful of scams. People who say, hey, give us X number of dollars and we can get you a thousand subscribers. That's why they also have the watch time thing too, because you could have thousands and thousands of subscribers, but if none of them watch your stuff, then they're not going to want to pay you. Right. You know? Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you would like to mention? Yeah, I think along the lines of monetization, I think ads is also something to think about, especially with scams, you wanna make sure, because advertisers can do a lot of heavy lifting if you do have a monetized channel. Even if you don't have a monetized channel, I know there's some podcast apps that when you publish with their app, you can create like a 30 second ad for that company and then you get paid like 10 cents a listen or something. It's a very small amount, but finding companies that will pay you to advertise their product but you also have to be careful again for scams and making sure they're legit but what i like to do is to look at other people who are successful and doing and what other advertisers they're using that was never my priority but if advertiser comes up to me is like we want to sponsor you i'll always say yes because i think that's cool as long as it's not a scam obviously but i think that's another way to think about money and, and another way to just expand the channel more i know there are some great advertisers out there that love to support creators and youtubers and stuff which is nice to see because they benefit too because you bring them business as well so i think that's another thing is cross promotion is always good and whenever i have people guest on my channel i like to always say hey i would love to have you talk about your channel because i want other people to find your channel and then they'll usually have me on theirs so like it's a nice cross promotion to bring people from all angles and all places 
to find each other's art and to support one another. With networking, it's also important to promote those people who are working in your field too, because their subscribers can then become your subscribers someday if, if you help give them the outlet too. Dylan, thank you so much for doing this. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah, it was such a pleasure. I love talking about my acting and all that stuff, but I never really have the outlet to talk about the other side of me, which is the YouTube, which is the film criticism, because that is such a love of mine too. And that is what I see myself doing on the side of the acting and stuff, especially in this time where like pandemics made it a lot harder to be consistently working in theater. It's always nice to have this outlet and to be able to talk about it candidly and openly is really cool. And then thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Theater Project Thinks About. Our audio engineer was Alex Gomez, and our theme music was by Gail Liu and Damian DeSandes. Visit thetheaterproject.org to sign up for our mailing list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. And if you liked what you heard today, please consider leaving a comment on our Facebook or Instagram page. That's all for this episode. We'll see you next time.